0: So a very warm welcome to the second talk in the seminar series on complexity and systemic risk uh, here at the 21st Century School, which is being run in conjunction with the Kaplan Complexity Center. Uh, before I introduce today's speaker, uh, very briefly something on uh, the topic. Uh, we thought that uh, it would be particularly interesting to hear uh, something on from Jeffrey West because of the... Program in the Future of Cities, uh, which is running the 21st century school. And um, in fact, we've got uh, two talks in uh, <coughs> purely by chance in sequence. So uh, today's talk and then the talk by Mike Batty next week, which both from a different perspective look at what uh, complex systems approaches can tell us about uh, urban social systems and social systems more generally. Uh, So that's the general preamble. I'm extremely pleased to welcome Jeffrey West, today's speaker, who is Distinguished Research Professor at the Santa Fe Institute, and until reasonably recently, although I'm sure he's trying to suppress the memory, was president of the Santa Fe Institute. And so uh, he's an interesting speaker here, uh, really for two reasons. First of all, because of the substantive area of uh, his current work, uh, which is of great interest to us. But second of all, because he has considerable experience in, in running a truly interdisciplinary uh, research center, which is a very difficult thing to do, and which, of course, is what the 21st Century School is uh, very keen to do successfully. So, on both accounts, uh, Jeffrey is an extremely appropriate speaker to have here. Jeffrey started his career in theoretical particle physics. Uh, many of you might know his uh, very influential work, much of it done with Jim Brown. Uh, in the mid to late 90s on uh, scaling in biological systems and essentially showing that even in the messy world of biology, uh, you were able to come up with uh, stunningly simple uh, scaling laws and also with some some very nice underlying mechanisms that could explain why you would find such scaling laws. Uh, And his interests have now shifted to thinking about the extent to which scaling laws can also be applied to social systems, which I guess is a sort of typically physics thing to do because if you start from looking at at scaling laws in particle theory and then go on to biology, you might as well go on to social systems as well. And so today we'll hear about growth, innovation, and the pace of life from cells to ecosystems to cities and corporations. As you see, a very comprehensive title, are they sustainable? I don't want to waste any more time and I'd like to hand straight over to Jeffrey West. Thank you. (laughs)
1: Felix, for inviting me, and uh, thank you. Well, thank you, Ian, for hosting this series. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, and I was given the, I got a couple of emails, actually, given strict instructions. get non-technical and very elementary level, etc. Et which I will make every attempt to do. There, is, there are one or two places where there are a couple of equations that are just sort of there for window dressing, basically. Um, Um, And I think part of the raison d'etre for this series is to sort of spread the word about uh, complexity and transdisciplinary research and all the rest of it. And uh, as Felix has uh, intimated in his introduction, I spent the last few years being intimately and passionately involved in promoting such ideas uh, through the Center for Institute, which was set up primarily for that purpose, and is often um, is often referred to as, so to speak, the founding uh, institution or the founding place of, of modern ways of looking at complexity science, or complex adaptive systems, as many of us call them. And uh, so um, I, I want to spend just two or three minutes at the beginning talking a little teeny bit about complexity itself. And then I'm going to talk about kind of the big picture of what we're trying to do, we in our collaboration that is, uh, are trying to do. And um, I will, uh, the main focus of the talk, which is the second half of of it, is what uh, Felix intimated, is actually about cities and urbanization and uh, really the end result asking the much deeper question about whether any of this is actually sustainable. And uh, putting it in a in a much bigger framework. So um, a lot of this is uh, a lot of this is quite old in the sense that it goes back over a ten year period. Some is very recent, and some is very speculative. And um, just looking around the audience, I know that there are several people who have I see one there that I have that have heard me before on some of these. And I apologise if, it, if it, some of this is repetitious. So one of the first questions that always comes up when you start talking about complexity... Oh, let's see, let's see if I can get this thing to work. Hold on a second. Oops. There you go. So the title, of course, is like one of those 18th century novels. <laughs> but one of the first questions that comes up is, you know, what is complexity? And, uh, you know, running an institute that was, uh, that was kind of dedicated to thinking about complexity. This was always a struggle. And in the end, I uh, and and I should say, those that have heard me before will excuse me <coughs> in hearing any substance here repeated, but also the crappy jokes that come along, uh, one of which is actually leaded, led into by this. I'm reminded of this from a uh, very distinguished uh, member of the Supreme Court of the United States, Potter Stewart, in, in discussing. Uh, uh, major case in the 60s on pornography and the first amendment and said i shall not today attempt further to define pornography and perhaps i never could i could never succeed in intelligibly doing so but i know it when i see it and i took that as a point of departure to talk about complexity and i think most of us that delve in it do know it when we see it and i think most of you do Um, and having said that I just want to flash on. Um, this is certainly not definitional in any sense. This is just um, buzzwords that are associated with complex systems, and in particular with much of life much of social systems, organisms, societies, markets, economies, and so on. Uh, they're made of many components, lots of actors, lots of agents, often many modules, It covers many different levels of uh, space and time, many different scales are involved, all all interacting at the same time, usually in a strongly interacting way, highly coupled. Mm -hmm. They are typically non-linear with multiple feedback loops. They're very sensitive to boundary conditions typically. A small effect over here can have a huge effect over here. Uh, So there can be analogs to chaotic phenomena, the butterfly effect, maybe the Mortgage meltdown was one of those. Um, Similarly, they're subject to many phases, meaning that there are many emergent phenomena. City is certainly more than just the sum of the citizens in it or the the, the road networks or whatever. It's much more than that, so we have a very simple idea that the whole is much greater than the sum of the parts. Um, And of course, associated with all those phenomena are the usual problems of unintended consequences. That it, again, if you change, you make a small perturbation somewhere, it has often unpredictable effects elsewhere, and associated with that is the idea that these systems are continually adapting and evolving, and despite that, they are extremely robust and resilient very often, and that gets into all kinds of questions that start to lead us into sustainability, because. The question is, what is it that you're trying? If you're trying to do it, to sustain, what is it that's being sustained? I mean, we can, if we think of sustainability in the common parlance, um, presumably we're trying to sustain the social system, the system that we all uh, participate in. Um, but you know, um, that may not be sustainable. But life itself may be sustainable. So there's different levels of the system and different scales, and I'll come back to that uh, momentarily. Um, and most of these systems are historically contingent and path dependent, how you got there, well, where you are depends on how you got there, and uh, individual events in the history of the system. And these systems are typically way out of equilibrium. And the two two points I'm going to emphasize in this, well, one in particular, is that many of these systems, despite the fact that they have daunting complexity and often seem overwhelming in their complexity and diversity have an underlying simplicity. And that's what this talk is about, is the underlying simplicity that is giving rise to the complexity. And one of the things that one always has to distinguish in that is the difference between a system being very complicated and being complex. So. All kinds of methods, and I'm not going to dwell on this at all, have been uh, developed uh, for dealing with these kinds of systems. The only point I want to emphasize is the one I've already said, that one of the reasons that people started realizing that you could actually start to think seriously about these highly complex systems were computer simulations that, uh, in fact, did demonstrate that simple rules can lead to extraordinarily complex and diverse phenomena with many of the properties I had on the last slide. So, having talked about complexity, here's simplicity. This is the other end of the spectrum. This is considered a simple system, the solar system. Why? Because if I had a blackboard here, well, under here there is, I could write down in two or three lines the equations that govern the motions of all these planets to a great degree of accuracy, so much so that, of course, we can... We know how to manipulate satellites so that we have the whole communication system that we have. So this is considered a simple system because we can write down the equations, the algorithm for determining the evolution of the solar system is, at a certain level anyway, extraordinarily simple. But the point I want to emphasize here is that that is a very scale-dependent statement. Because in thinking of that, we ignore, for example, the fact that Mars is red, and the Earth has this kind of fine structure on it. And indeed, if we focus down on the Earth, of course, we start seeing that structure. You start seeing all the wonderful complexity of life. And indeed, you will see something like that, of course, eventually. And that is a classic complex system because... I cannot write down in a simple way two or three equations that would describe the evolution and dynamics of that complex system, um, namely the the growth, uh, the structure, the organization, the interaction of all the participants in that system. And um, so it's a scale-dependent statement, the degree of complexity, and one of the thrusts of what I want to talk about today, is in fact not with the idea of developing a theory analogous to Newton's laws that uh, in great detail to extraordinary degrees of accuracy can describe this system, but the idea that maybe we can construct a theory that will have a coarse-grained description of this so that we will be able to ask questions and answer questions like how many trees are there of this size how much energy is flowing through this branch what is the density of trees of this size how many leaves are on this branch etc cetera, etc cetera. all the kind of generic questions you would want to have to ask about the organization structure and dynamics of this system including its time evolution And um, uh, I will only touch on that as we go through. But let me say that the theoretical framework that I'm going to be discussing answers all those questions. And I will just touch on some of the data to support it and so on. But the main thrust of it is, really, is that a forest? That is, can we take the same ideas that are successfully applied to a forest, as an example, could they be applied to this? This happens to be Dubai. Uh, but could it be applied to this or any one of these? This. And I showed this one because it shows a primitive version of a network. And networks will play more and more, as you will see as I <coughs> develop this, a central role in, try- in developing a theoretical conceptual framework. Okay, or this, Manhattan, or this. And I've just shown this because we get into the problem of energy. See very explicitly energy there. But of course, these systems function uh, by uh, metabolizing energy and resources. And uh, that has to be made somewhere. And so one of the questions that this touches on immediately are all the questions of what is it that feeds into a social organization? And what I'm going to do is just show you a bunch of pictures now, and then I'm going to go back to the theoretical development of a biological system and use that as a point of departure for addressing some of these questions. So I'll go around a little bit in circles. Um, So the energy that supports this, of course, leads to all these goodies that we all love. That's the system we want to sustain at some level. Well, this all these goodies, all the, the culture and the creativity and the good food and the good life and so on. The real question is, how is it that we do this and at the same time do this? That is, what, what is the relationship of this to this and this? And what is the relationship of this and this and this to this? this is in a physicist terms the result of lots of entropy entropy production producing literally shit that has to, is the is a product of the energy being produced and how do we understand that and also how do we have a theory that interrelates all of these and stops leading the world looking like this ultimately which incidentally just parenthetically not as not necessarily as a scientist uh, I think this is basically what the world will end up looking like. That's, that's a sign of My interest in this is: is there anything we can do to stop it? Okay, but first, and I is we need to understand it before, in order to address these questions and end up with this as the asymptotic state or worse. And understanding means, in my language not descriptive and qualitative only, and not narrative only, those play crucial and important parts, but it be quantitative, mathematizable, and predictive. So going back to energy, just to keep flashing on pictures and images, uh, this is the network that carries electricity around. And one of the interesting questions is, uh, how is that related to the similar grid that carries your energy around? And let me just make a side remark, that it's the same. It's, it's the principles that govern this transmission uh, follow this, uh, this transmission. We work in an almost identical way, um, except for maybe the geometric structure, which I will actually talk a little bit about later. Okay, so um, here's a bunch of networks. That's, one of, that's a piece of this, of course. And uh, there's the internet. And I'm just going to flash on those kinds of things, all kinds of networks in the brain cells, finance, economies, and so on. Uh, Here's a corporate structure, and I will come back to that briefly at the end. Another network. um, And the relationship of that kind of network to this network, which is the way you stay alive. It's your metabolic network. This is the network of chemicals that participate in the production of ATP, which is your currency of energy. But you can see networks beginning to play more and more an important role and I want to just take, take a side comment to talk about networks in a slightly different context, again, to set the scene. This is a uh, breakdown of the 787, the new Boeing plane. And uh, just to lay my cards on the table, I actually work with Boeing uh, I'm, I'm and consult, but uh, they support some of our work because they're interested. And I'm going to explain to you why they're interested in this work. So here's the plane. It's an extraordinary plane. And I say that uh, not because they give me some money, but because it is. And I've seen it. I've been there. I've seen it being produced. And I've given a tour. It's fantastic. Um, And you can see that you something you well know. It's globalized. You can see bits are produced all over the bloody place. In fact, I only noticed looking through the talk, a piece is produced nearby. In Gloucester. But look at it. there's a piece in McGoire, a piece of Wichita and so on. And what is one of the amazing things about this is you know Boeing is one of the few companies that remained rather local for a very long period. Um, it, uh, it had kind of a family that was the idea I mean, that it was, but that was the, the image and the culture it tried to propagate. And you notice on this plane, if you look that only one piece of the plane is built in the state of Washington okay it's assembled in uh, Seattle so here it is it's assembled and this plane when they designed it um, was uh, they calculated that they need to to sell 250 of these before they make a profit so after 250 roughly they start to make a profit this plane as you all I'm sure know got delayed more than two years more than two years Means when you redo that calculation, they have to sell 650 planes. They have orders for just over 800. So they start to worry. In fact, many of the signs a year ago was that this was going to go the way of General Motors. It would be bailed out by the United States government. That the company was in deep doo-doo. Now, um, why did it get into this state? Well it got into this state they think and I certainly think from talking to them because they globalised great okay. but when you globalise and you look across this and this is just the coarse grain version of it there is this enormous network this extraordinary network that has all kinds of contingencies in it and all kinds of sensitivities and it is a complex network with all the properties, many of the properties anyway, that I talked about for about complex systems. And that meant that uh, all kinds of problems that they were not anticipating immediately occurred. Some indeed were of the nature that a little, I don't know if this, I can make this one up, a little glitch in somewhere in Sweden means that everything gets screwed up in Nagoya and then something gets screwed up down the road in Gloucester, and so on, and everything gets out of sync. And that was their problem. So what they discovered was that they were very, very good. They are. They may be the best engineering company in the world. They're superb at engineering, and therefore, of doing very complicated simplicity, because an aeroplane has a book that tells you how to build a 787. You can write it all down. But they don't know how to do complexity did not know how to deal with the network dynamics that they had, uh, that had evolved under the guise of building this and globalizing it. And that's what delayed them two years. So they got very interested in the structure of these kinds of networks and indeed, more importantly for them, actually, the structure of their company. Okay, so that's kind of the background and the setting. Okay, what's next? So here's uh, here's my message at the end of this talk. I'm going to put it right up front and then I'll try to substantiate it, even though maybe all of you agree or maybe disagree. Anyway, it's a point for discussion. So the the three points I want to make. One is that all these problems that we perceive, financial markets, economies, global warming, environment, all these things which are dealt with primarily in a kind of stovepipe way, are all actually highly interconnected, <coughs> Highly, each one being a complex adaptive system, but the whole bloody thing being highly interconnected, strongly related, and the whole thing being a complex adaptive system. And that uh, it's time we started thinking about that seriously. That is in a much more integrated, holistic way, and we need a new kind of framework for addressing these because these problems are coming at us like a tsunami, as we all feel. They seem to be huge. They seem to be highly threatening. And I would also like to propose that it's not only a bigger conceptual framework, that it be systemic, quantitative, and predictive. So it be science-based, put it in simple terms. And the the last point I want to emphasize is that the reason for this. The reason that we are having all these problems now, all these problems have been with us, well, maybe for thousands of years for all I know, but certainly uh, for the last two or three hundred years, we've had all these problems. But they've been subdominant, quite subdominant. Uh, they, they were recognized and talked about even a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, but they were subdominant. The reason that they're now a tsunami and all coming to us together is because of the faster than exponential rate at which the planet is being urbanized. And cities are the source of all of these problems. Each one of those problems has its origins in urbanization. And the solution to the problem is in urban, urban centers, because that's where all the smart people are. Urban centers are vacuum cleaners that suck up creativity, innovation. Okay, so I just, these numbers many of you are very familiar with. Um, At the uh, birth of the United States, less than 3 or 4% of the population was urban. It's now something like 82 83%. And many of you know that uh, two or three years ago, the world crossed this extraordinary marker in which 50% of us, now more than 50%, live in uh, cities. And by 2050, it'll be like uh, over 80%. And so this problem is getting more and more (coughs) threatening, more and more urgent. And ironically, and and I speak, and I may be cluttered by people in this room, some people in this room, there is no real serious theory of cities. And I think it's very urgent. We come to grips with that, and we realize we take that as a point of departure for starting to address these questions. OK, so I think that ends, yes, the, the, um, that ends the introduction, except I want to frame what I'm going to say now in terms of some questions, because they're questions that drive my own research, even though they don't drive the research agenda, they just drive the research in my head. And that is the first one, are social organizations, citizen companies, just very large organisms. That is, is uh, Oxford just a great big whale? Or is Chevron both a great big elephant? Um, um, uh, that's one question. Second question is: Why is it that essentially all cities survive? I mean, we know of obvious exceptions, but most cities survive. But all companies fail. All companies fail. There are very, very few companies that have lived uh, more than um, one hundred and fifty years, and a tiny number that are three or four hundred years old, and they're very special. So why is that? What's going on here? Can we understand that? And uh, uh, if for no other reason, it would be useful for a company to know what is the dynamic. So I did get, uh, I, I think, as many of you know, Larry Page is you know, one of the co founders of Google, I think we're no longer on speaking terms because I asked him the question as to how long does he think Google will survive. Because I said that ought to be, if we really understood companies, In some ways, given all the data of Google, a predictable number—that is, within you know, you know—is it going to be 20 years or 40 years or 100 years? That's the question. Okay. So, and this this talk is deliberately slightly provocative, and I must say, I was absolutely delighted that Bob May was the first speaker. because there's nothing I could ever say (laughs) that could trounce him in being provocative and uh, using uh, inappropriate language, or what is sometimes... (laughs) (laughs) So I will feel free when it comes to it to do it. Okay, so these are some of the properties of life, Uh, you know, but they're also properties of organisations. So the question really is, are these just metaphors for social organisations? for cities, companies, states, and so on? Or is there something, can we put some real meat on them? So um, this one I consider the, one of the most crucial, one that is does not get enough attention, mainly, and I will come back to this, the tension between energy and resources, the production of energy and resources, and the uh, uh, flow and use of information. And of course in biology, you know, many people believe it's all information. All mm-hmm. everything is genes. You know, the whole genome project is somehow based on this idea you solve everything you map the genome. Um, uh, ignoring that there are of course uh, you know there's considerations of energy and resources and so forth, and that those and in many ways energy resources are primary. You can't have information flow without energy transfer okay so uh, I want to begin now by just give reviewing some work that I was involved in in terms of biology it's the work that uh, Felix referred to and um, it it will set the stage for going back to the social organizations but it sets up a nice framework so um, the one of the most extraordinary things about life is is and this is one tiny example, is that life uses, you know, basically the same mechanisms, the same biochemical phenomena, um, the same principles, if you like, over extraordinary extraordinary range of sizes, uh, from intracellular levels all the way up through multicellular organisms, even to ecosystems. Um, And somehow it's extraordinarily scalable in some way. And... uh, And and that's kind of surprising, given the extraordinary diversity. And the way that gets represented is by this, it's a very well-known plot. Um, And it's a kind of remarkable plot, I think, because what is plotted here is in some ways the most fundamental quantity of any complex system, but in particular of an organism, how much energy do you need to sustain it per second? So that's the metabolic rate, and it's expressed in watts. And along here is the weight in body mass. And this is ancient data, or I don't know how old this is, but it was discovered a long time ago. But if you plot it on this log-log plot, you get a very simple straight line. Now this is extraordinary for lots of reasons, because each one of these organisms, each modular piece of it, each cell type, has evolved in its own unique environmental niche. We talked about historical contingencies. Each one has followed some, roughly speaking, unique path. Many of these, of course, are phylogenetically connected. Nevertheless, they each have a certain uniqueness about them. And you (coughs) might have expected to see much more stochasticity in this, many more fluctuations. And you see some very regular behavior that somehow metabolic rate, despite historical contingency and natural selection, follows some very simple um, uh, scaling law. Incidentally, uh, I, I want to just take a second out, let is this the thing you notice that you sit about here, you're about 90 watts. So each person in this room functions at about a light bulb, fair, an old incandescent light bulb. Uh, one interesting thing, and I'm gonna I say it now, even though it actually should come later, but I'll forget it. If you ask about, this is, this you should interpret as man and woman as evolved biologically. So that's how we all were until about 10,000 years ago. 10,000 years ago, we started talking to one another and forming communities. Introducing maybe a new dynamic, which is we will explore momentarily. Um, that led to communities, and that led to the, now the question, how much is our real metabolic rate, in terms of the energy we actually use to sustain ourselves as social beings, as distinct from biological beings, and uh, that number—I uh, should have added something else. I'm very sorry. This is actually technically called basal metabolic rate. So it's you sitting there, kind of dozing off, not being active, and so on. If you add in your daily activity, this number goes up by about 2.5, roughly, systematically across. It's just moves the whole thing up. So uh, for a human being it's maybe somewhere between two and three hundred watts is what you actually use, doing what I'm doing, pacing around and talking and so on, and up, all of that. If you then ask what do I, what, is, what do I really use to support me as a social organism, that is I need lights, I need cars, I need this building, Etc., um, uh, etc. Et if you add all that up, instead of two to 300 watts, each one of us in this room uses an excess of 10,000 watts, which is uh, a, an extraordinary distortion, of course, of the kind of interrelationship that developed to produce this. And you can turn the question around and you can look even at this graph and you can see it's actually 11,000 watts. You are out here. And you can go up here, and you can see actually, if you work it out, you're bigger than a blue whale in terms of the energy we use. So it's a kind of graphic way, and disturbing way of seeing, uh, you know, how we've um, what we're doing to the planet, especially since then. Instead of you know fifty or one hundred million of us, there are seven billion, and going to maybe ten to twelve billion. Okay, so um, this pattern gets repeated. Um, across the whole spectrum of biology. You can make this plot for, um, you know, the top one is what I talked about, the middle one is um, cold-blooded, and then there are unicells, and this is just modern data we put together for unicells. It's the same plot, this is the same line, and it's covered, it goes from here all the way up to the whale is 27 orders of magnitude. So there's, uh, so it, it's uh, rather surprising. Um, and so, um, just to make sure everybody's on the same page, one of the things that is, I meant to point this out here, you notice this, oops, the slope of this, these lines, which are all the same, all are three, roughly speaking three quarters. They, they cluster around 0.75, and I'm not, you know, experts will have to excuse me in terms of niceties here. I'm just going to talk about the kind of average kind of behavior of all of these things. Uh, around three quarters. And that says that, uh, that that is less than linear behavior, meaning that um, if you were to increase, and I gave this example here, the mass by a factor of 10 to the fourth, four orders of magnitude, you might have expected, since you increased the number of cells by, roughly speaking, four orders of magnitude, you would have expected the metabolic rate to increase by 4 as a magnitude, but in fact, it only increases by a factor of 1,000. So we have this very primitive version of an extraordinary economy of scale the bigger you get systematically. Okay, And there it is, that the metabolic rate of an average cell decreases systematically as mass to the one quarter. Okay. So your cells are working harder than a horse's, but less hard than a dog. And here's a plot of it, and I will leave that out. There's some numbers, I will leave that. So um, that's kind of an interesting, and I think a remarkable plot, but it gets repeated across any physiological variable you care to measure. Here's a mundane one, the radius of the aorta, plotted for a bunch of mammals. It's the radius versus the body weight, and you can see there's a systematic behavior, and the slope of this line is very close to three-eighths, which means the square of it and it's the cross section of the aorta, scales as massive as three quarters, similar to the metabolic rate, and it's the same as tree trunks. So these are either diabolical accidents, or they're telling us that underlying the extraordinary complexity, there must be some very simple constraints that are somehow constraining things not to be arbitrary and solely dependent, if uh, on the on its uh, historical and on its history. Okay, here's, I'm going to just show a few of these. Here's uh, heart rate. This decreases as mass to the minus one quarter, and so on. Lifespan, I would just mention this because it's fun. If you don't know it, many people are familiar with it. That lifespan, roughly speaking, increases as mass to the one quarter, um, but heart rate decreases as mass to the one quarter. So if you multiply them together, you get this intriguing result that the number of heartbeats in a lifespan is, roughly speaking, invariant. So... The shrew that sits on the palm of my hand, only for a year or two, uh, uh, undergoes the same number of heartbeats as a whale, a blue whale, that is much bigger than this room, that could live for 150 years. So, if you understood this, and this is obviously some fundamental number in biology, actually, if you understood this, you'd understand why. Uh, why you know, I can look around this room say with some certainty that everybody in this room, I have to be careful, will be dead in, well, certainly a hundred years. <laughs> okay. Some of us, uh, sadly, may be dead in five or ten years. But, uh. So we, so one of the big questions in this kind of framework is, where in the hell does that hundred years come from? Where does this number come from? In terms of microscopic, <laughs> fundamental biological quantities. We believe everything is driven by behaviour of molecules, whether they're genes or respiratory enzymes and so on, uh, wherein those parameters sits 100 years for a human being and two to three years for a mouse. So that's not what I'm going to talk about. That's a very interesting topic, obviously, of itself. Um, here's an informational network. This is white matter versus gray matter in the brain. That's the, uh, 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 And this is the genome length. And incidentally, that has a slope very close to five quarters. Here's genome length um, for versus cellular mass. And I'm just flashing through these. And so we end up with these, these. I could show you lots and lots of these. Lots and lots. There's loads of them. And they all have the same characteristic. And here's the summary of them. So despite the extraordinary complexity and diversity, there are these remarkable scaling laws. And they have, which well, I haven't emphasized, each one of them has an exponent, the three quarters, which is, seems to be very simply related to one quarter. Times tend to go as mass of the one quarter, rates decrease as mass of the one quarter, and so on. And that seems to be to permeate across the breadth of biology. And as I mentioned earlier, you have this economy of scale that seems to be part of it. And the question is, why? where does the number four come from? Where, where do these come from? What are they manifesting? And the, I, the work that I was involved in uh, revolved around the idea that these, this ubiquity of results covering the spectrum of biology from the intracellular level to the ecosystem level, and across multitude of variables, all manifesting similar kinds of things, are all manifestations of universal mathematical. Geometric topological properties of networks. And as a subheading of those is to do with their uh, fractality to some extent. Okay, so that's the idea. And uh, if it were a technical talk, I then developed that, but it isn't. I forgot what I put here now. Um, oh, I wrote down, so I'm not <laughs> going to tell you what those are. It's getting late. But suffice it to say that here's the the, the program that we set up. Mm-hmm. We, um, so the first point was that um, you have to find something, some mechanism, some structures that are independent of the evolved engineered structure. This, After all, this works for plants, trees out there, works for us, works for fish. It actually works inside cells. So networks are the obvious one because It is the solution that natural selection found for distributing energy and information. simplest kind of hierarchical network. So we postulated a bunch of properties, which I'm not going to uh, uh, bore you with here, um, but some generic properties that are independent of the design. I'll just give you one, and that is that these networks are space meaning they have to go everywhere. I mean, that is, that is, my circuitry system has to make sure that every capillary ends up in close proximity to a group of cells, so that, roughly speaking, all cells are being fed efficiently and democratically. So you have to take that and put it into mathematics. So there's a whole bunch of things like that. Um, one, which is the most, uh, maybe the biggest assumption, is that of the of the infinitude of the networks that have these some of these generic properties, the ones that have evolved by natural selection have in some way optimized the system. It's something that the biologists don't like as a rule, but that's what we did so that you could math, because if you have an optimization principle or a minimization principle, uh, that can typically be mathematized and analogs to equations of motion like newton's laws for these networks can be derived okay so that's what those say and i just wanted to show you a bunch of networks that's uh, well that's the circulatory system to the brain that's your white to gray matter that's your lungs that's a tree another tree that's some little parasite lives inside an elephant that's inside a mitochondrion network that's a cellular intracellular network and so on So I'm going to skip all this. I'm going to skip all this. I put it in there in case someone asks nasty questions. Um, Suffice it to say, we've examined many of these networks. And I just want to show you one. This is our ancient, but the cardiovascular system. And I just want to show that we have predictions and the observed values of the scaling itself, the kind I talked about. But in addition, we have a. Complete theory for the average kind of network of a mammal. So, if you perversely wanted to know the radius length, pulse rate, blood flow rate, stress on the tube of the eighth branch in a hippopotamus, there's a formula that you can write down and put in the numbers. And I don't know if you get the right answer for a hippopotamus, but you do get the right right answer on the average for human beings, mice. Rats, dogs, and cats where there's quite good data. So we've done that for that, the respiratory system for plants and trees and so on. And uh, I have to be careful here, yes, I'm uh, going to have to keep going for a bit. So I will miss this out. I do want to show you one thing before moving into growth. there is, I showed you a picture of a forest, and I, I asked a whole bunch of questions. One is, what is the distribution of tree sizes? And it turns out in this theory, you get an extraordinarily simple result after some complicated mathematics, and you find the number of trees um, of whose diameter is d is given by this formula. It goes as the inverse square of the diameter. That's the formula. Very simple, extraordinarily simple. And uh, here's the data. So it agrees very well. There's the exponent very close to two. But more importantly, is that we've done this for lots of uh, tropical rainforests. You see, and unfortunately, I've got the wrong graph on here. There's another one with the 90s on here that fits on here. This is turning over extraordinarily quickly. So, in fact, the forest in 1981 is actually, in terms of individuals, is different than in 1947. It's a whole different forest. But it's as it's turned over, it's constrained, it's, uh, it's been constrained by the network that is the forest to um, follow these rules. And the forest is a very interesting case because you have to work out the network of an individual tree itself, the branching, and then the network, the virtual network, that connects the way all the trees are interacting with one another. That gives rise eventually to this. Um, this I will skip to It's uh, just there. so I want to talk about growth. There's a growth curve, weight versus <coughs> age. So here's how you calculate a growth curve. That is, how what is your weight as a function of time? So I'm going to give you the absolutely condensed version here. So what do you do? You eat. You metabolize the energy. You metabolize the food make energy what happens to that energy well roughly speaking it maintains what's there the cells are there and it creates new ones if you grow okay so this is my one equation there it is so here it is metabolic rate because the number of cells that are there energy needed to the metabolic rate of each cell energy needed to create a cell the rate at which you create them and from that you can derive a very simple equation for the mass as a function of time, how it grows. And the important point of this is not just that you get the equation, but these parameters in it are determined by universal, universal, by fundamental biological numbers that are that cross all species, like overall scale of metabolism, average mass of a cell and so on. Here's the solution for those interested, but the important point is if you take that You take those parameters in there, you stick it in the equation, in the solution and you calculate, this is what you get for very different kinds of animals. There's a mammal and there's another mammal, very different size. There's a fish and there's a bird and uh, you can see uh, that uh, it gives pretty good fit. And in fact, you can condense all those, those that are familiar with dimensionless ways of plotting things, you can uh, write this in such a way that everybody grows at the same time. That is, this is a technical <coughs> side, really, but if you plot the mass at ht relative to the mature mass and take the quarter power, it's what the theory tells you to do, and plot it versus this Byzantine variable where t is the age and a is one of the parameters that comes from of cell and energy needed to create a cell and so on. The theory says if you plot it this way, there's a universal growth curve, and everybody grows in the same way. So it's kind of a way of showing the unity of life and universality of these ideas. And of course, the interesting question then would be, why you know, why, why, why does each, in, in, in every case, why does it deviate and why doesn't it deviate? What was going on in its evolutionary history, life history, and so on. So that's a separate issue. So this has been applied to cancer, and I don't have time to tell you about that. It's been applied to evolution itself, to sleep, and so on. And I want to summarize quickly what we've said about biology. There are these nonlinear scaling laws with these interesting, quote, universal quarter powers. Um, The exponents are always less than one, leading to economies of scale, the pace of life, decreases systematically with size, no matter what you look at, diffusion rates, lifespans, whatever. Um, according to this court of power, there are these sigmoidal growth curves. You grow and you stop growing, according to this, and I didn't take time to explain where in the theory that comes from. If someone wants to ask me, I will explain later. But why the, you stop growing, you, you, why all of us in, in this room are no longer growing upwards, and are still growing upwards, but none of us are growing up and um the uh so there's a stable asymptote and this is a stable system because of this because of this economies of scale the stable asymptote, and it's all governed by properties of veterans. so this is sustainable and it's been sustainable for a billion years or more so we want to ask the same questions about social organizations same thing so um the first question is so let me go back to um, these guys' life. So what did we show? We showed, um, the data showed, and uh, we claim uh, we have an underlying theory to explain it, that um, <clears throat> even though a whale lives in the ocean, an elephant has trunk, and a giraffe a long neck, and uh, a shrew sits on my hand, and I stand, we all stand upright, But despite all of that, we're actually, to a great degree, just scaled versions of one another in a non-linear way, in a highly non-linear way, which is governed by these networks and which we claim to have worked out. So the question then is, if we turn to cities and companies, which I will touch on, hopefully, before I finish. Um, I have no idea what that's doing <laughs> Uh, are they approximately scaled versions of one another? Is Oxford a scaled-down London? Or a scaled-up... I don't know where. I'm forgotten by England. But, you know, our cities just, uh, despite the fact that they look very different in, in America, New York looks very different than San Francisco, and looks very different than Cleveland, and they look very different from Santa Fe. But are they, in fact, scaled-up versions of one another? And uh, therefore... So mathematically, do they obey these kind of power law scalings? And if they do, is there any analog to universality as in biology? And are they related to the biological scaling laws? So that's the question. I use the symbol R for the various uh, characteristics of a city. We did cities to begin with, incidentally, because we could not get data for companies. Uh, without paying huge amounts of money and we were just beginning this is two or three years ago I'm glad that happened because I was very disappointed to have to work on cities instead of companies which our original proposal actually was to do that Uh, but it turned out cities were much more interesting I think Um, and uh, now we're funded we just bought uh, a whole uh, for a large amount of money I must say um, data to begin the work on companies and I will try to show you a teeny bit of it before I finish. So the question is, do they scale in this way where n is the analogue to the mass, is the the population of a city? Okay, so uh, rates, if this is the way quantities typically go, then rates, if they're determined by the network, behave like this. So you saw in uh, biology this was three quarters, this would be three quarters minus one, be than minus one quarter for rates. Things get slower the bigger you are. Phrenetic mouse versus laborious elephant. Uh, so B less than one, the pace of life slows down. B greater than one, the pace of life speeds up. And we were surprised when we looked at social scaling relations that A, they were actually as good as they were for many of these things. This is wages in the United States and this is something that's called super creative, people like yourself, some social scientists use this phrase, or have used this phrase. And uh, you can see it's pretty good, and what you see is that in terms of these social phenomena, of which there are no real analogues in biology, these exponents are bigger than one. And since I'm getting late, I'm going to zoom ahead i'll just show you some others this is we've done it for many things police protection tax receipts construction debt i you can see they're very good these have been binned and you can see it didn't have too much bidding and the, the, the plots are really good and they all have you notice, know exponents 1.15 to about 1.2 and i'm going to jump we've looked at patent production i don't know, name it employment patterns and there's a list But given how late it is, I'm going to zoom ahead to this. Because this is the summary of a huge amount of data mining that my colleagues did. Um, I uh, I brought them together. I can't do this. And they're extremely good. And this was a wonderfully uh, cross-disciplinary team of economists, urban economists, urban geographers, anthropologists, physicists, mathematicians, biologists, and so on. So here's what we discovered. We discovered that infrastructural quantities like length of roads, length of electrical cables, things that just distribute energy and so on, uh, water, all scaled in this what we call sublinear way, an exponent that was about 0.8. And they all scaled the same way, all roughly speaking 0.8, so that. You had an economy of scale, the bigger the city, the less roads you had per capita, less electrical lines per capita, less water lines per capita, all to the same degree. Okay. So. <clears throat> I'm not going to talk about these, are trivial ones. this is like number of houses, each person has a house. But what was surprising to us, only at the time, in retrospect it seemed kind of obvious to me something like this, was that Socioeconomic quantities, ones that have no analogue in biology, ones that evolved only in the last five to ten thousand years as we form communities, like patents produced, number of colleges, number of police, etc. etc. All of those scaled in a superlinear way. The bigger you are, the higher the wages per capita. The more hospitals per capita, the more police per capita, the more professional people per capita, the more fancy restaurants per capita, all to the same degree, all with this 1.15 exponent, which translated into common parlance actually is roughly that if you double the size of the city, if you go from 10,000 to 20,000 or from a million to 2 million, you will have a roughly 15% increase in all those quantities, all those social quantities. But here's the kicker, that if you go to New York to get 15%, well, whatever it is, you get this increase in wages and a better life, more restaurants and so on, you're gonna get to the same degree an increase of crime, pollution, and disease. Because when we plotted those, we found everything lay on top of them. All these things come together and uh, uh, giving credence to the idea that these are not independent phenomena. And we've looked across all kinds of finance questions and so on. All of these are highly interconnected, and they all scale together. And somehow there is an underlying dynamic, just as there is in biology, it appears to be in biology, constraining these to scale in this way, but scale together. So the obvious, uh, given what we've done, the obvious attempt at an explanation Is to talk about networks. So one of the things we started to do was think about the network structures of social interactions and most importantly, the clustering of human interactions. You know, beginning with individual, family, but we talk academically, you know, your group and then your department and then your school and then so on, university, university British university system, world system and so on, actually going up by a hierarchy and you can make some progress with that and that's very much work in progress. So here's the statement, doubling the size of a city, systematically increases income, wealth, number of patents, number of colleges and so on, all by about 15% regardless of city in the United States, Europe and China. Is where we've only the only places we've looked at data how universal it is is open question and we're very interested in trying to look at places like India and uh, uh, Africa. We've just looked at Japan and it follows this rule. Okay, so here's what's what I said already. If life is dominated by social phenomena, getting more money producing patents, being created, all the things that make us human beings, divorce us from the so-called natural world. If that is the case, we have this super scaling, and coming along with it, if you have a network underlying it, inevitably is that the pace of life increases with size in a systematic way, in exact contrast to what happens in biology. The bigger you are, the faster it is. And we've looked at many different things uh, the rate at which disease spread, we've looked at uh, the um, rate at which bank transactions took place before the internet, actually. Um, and I think, oh, I have one, yeah, the speed of walking. So even the speed of walking, here it is. <laughs> this is a little low. We would have wanted this. the predictions a little higher than this, but nevertheless, it's kind of amazing. Uh, And this was to contrast it with biology, where you get it decreasing. That's heart rates. So I'm going to finish up soon, very soon. Um, This is a little complicated, and I'm going to... This is a little aside, but I do want to spend a minute on it. I've shown you this. This was the metabolic rate. And I showed you this, which is income versus population size for cities. This is some of our initial unpublished work on companies from some of the data we have and borrowed from our Swiss colleagues, just to kind of test out ideas of what's plotted here. There's two things plotted, net income and total assets of companies simply versus their employees. Now, whether that's the right metric to use, we still don't know. Nevertheless, it shows uh, remarkable scaling properties. Here they are for assets and here they are for income. And one of the interesting things is you see there's all this kind of Little fluctuations and settling down um, for small companies. And that leads to all kinds of interesting ideas about the birth of companies and what companies are doing in that phase and what they do when they start to move over to, uh, to being large. And you see, look at this, it's going from companies that are almost have like a million employees, and God only I mean, knows what that is, down to ones with that have just a few. Um, This is another one I want to point to, which is somewhat separate, but actually in some ways related. And what this is, is a classic performance curve. I'm sure many of you business background are familiar with these. That is, what this is, is just look at the red one. I hope I'm not going to break confidences here. This is the 737. And what it is, is the cost, basically, to produce a 737 versus how many are being produced. Okay. And it's fantastic. You see, you go down, and it's not a logarithmic plot. And they, they made us take the units off here. Uh, you can see, you make more and more money the more you produce, and that's been an extraordinary plan. Um, I must tell you something, they had never plotted this. Bowie has never plotted this graph, which is mind blowing. No, so, you know, it really is. Anyway, sorry. That's my editorial comment. <laughs> and because it's mind blowing, because of the following this is the 767. And uh, you see at the beginning, and this only, abrupt, each one of these dots is a plane. So there's only, you know, <laughs> not very many planes. It's following what it should. And in fact, it gets even better down here. And then somewhere, when they start producing, and this is actually to about 100 planes, all hell breaks this. So 700, 800 planes have been produced in a way that each one costs more than the last one, for whatever reason. And uh, they knew they had trouble with 767. They never plotted it. <laughs> yes. And they never noticed. And they didn't realize, so way out here, things aren't very good. It's kind of depressing, actually. They must all have MBAs and so on, I'm sure. <laughs> um, actually, here's what's interesting. If you calculate what this triangle is worth, that is, this should have gone down here. This, conservatively, is $20 billion. So if you wanted to take an extreme view, arrogant view, you could say, if you started to see this, and corrected it, whatever it went, because you now have to analyse the details. You were corrected and get it back down on this. It would have saved Boeing you know, ten to twenty billion dollars, maybe more. Okay. That's what I want to show. I'm going to finish off now. Okay, sorry. So um, I want to show one, one or two things. Can I go on for about? I know I'm boring everybody by now. So should I stop? Two minutes, okay, two oh, three sorry. So let me, um, uh, so what this is plotting is the deviations. So you have this scaling curve that defines basically, if you tell me a city is 100,000 people, it should have this many police, it should be producing this many patents, uh, this much crime, this many AIDS cases. Blah, blah, blah. Everything. I mean, on the average. That's an average idealized city. So you can ask, each city, how does it deviate? This happens to be patent production, which is a crude proxy for innovation. And I'm sorry, it's spelt wrongly. Corvallis, Oregon is number one. Because? HP. HP, good man. (laughs) Very few people know that. And Oregon State. And so for its size, it does very well. San Jose. Obvious. Silicon Valley but if you look at the next graph what we plotted is the time sequence we've gone back to the beginnings of data on this and what you see is is San Jose and uh, you can see in the real boom it did go up this is deviations remember from this line is you're doing average averagely well above is good here you're underperforming, so this is the shittiest city in the United States, Brownsville, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, what's called Bridgeport, which is in fact a shitty city, but it's all those stockbroker types. <laughs> <laughs> but this, what you see is if you go back before Silicon Valley, San Jose was overperforming anyway. So, But the main message here is the robustness of this. It's very hard to change. Very difficult to change. Most of these, despite tremendous attempts at urban planners and so on, have had difficulty actually moving themselves away from this. So this is a very good metric to use. And for those interested, we have a website that has 367 American cities. We've correlated everything. So you can ask, if you're doing great with wages, how's your crime? And you can tell how you're correlated. Do you have more crime or less crime? So we've correlated up the kazoovers on this. And there's a website you can be interested. I do want to finish this, because this is the punchline. Growth, because this is the last piece. So here's the growth. So let's talk about growth of a social organization and follow the biological model. So what comes in, you said, goes to maintain what's there plus something that goes into growth. It's exactly the same equation. Uh, this is what it costs to maintain an individual this is what an individual costs to stay alive and this is what it costs to make an individual a productive individual so this is before they start work how much does it cost to make them before they start work so you can write the solution and so on and if the exponent was less than one we had this nice asymptote we all stop growing and eventually die okay? that's us I didn't talk about death at that time um, this is what happens, and this is bad for economies. Of course, this is terrible in, in traditionally because you stop. And that's very bad, and no doubt that's why we're not driven by this. We are, in fact, driven by that social behavior, superlinear behavior, and in that case, we have this marvelous growth, continuous growth. Except that's good, keep growing, don't stop growing, but. There's a problem in the equation, so now yeah, we are going into believing in mathematics. The equations say yes, you grow faster than exponential, and we've done wonderful fits, to lots of data on this. But what happens is somewhere along the line you hit what's called a finite time singularity, meaning that this is, I'm sorry, this is number versus time, I'm sorry. It should be you hit a, a finite time singularity in which, say, if it were a city, the population, or if it were a company, the total assets go to infinity in a finite time. Obviously nuts. Why? Why? What's, we know it's nuts. It's nuts because somewhere along here, you run out of resources. You run out of whatever it is that is feeding the system, whether it be coal, oil, or whatever. Whatever's driving this that is the major innovation could be computers, IT now. So how do you get round this fact that you're going to hit this singularity, and if you hit it and don't deal with it, this is the outcome. You reverse and you stagnate and collapse. So um, here's what you have to do. That's what would happen. So somewhere here, somewhere along here, you better reset the boundary conditions, meaning you better make a major innovation That changes, the conditions under which this curve was derived, because this curve was derived, say, with a coal economy. Now we move, I'm I'm going to say some words here, you move to an oil economy here, and you start over again. So that's great. You make some innovation, you start again. And uh, eventually you discover computers. That change, that somehow sets the economy in a completely different direction. And then, you discover IT in that sense, and so on. You get the idea. Could have been Stone Age, Iron Age, etc. So that's great, and so it shows there's a theorem you can prove that if you have if you demand continuous growth, you must have cycles of major innovations. Theorem you can prove in this, but there's a catch, and the catch is that what the theorem also says is the time to go from here to here must be bigger than here, and that to be bigger than here. Namely, the time between major innovations has to get shorter and shorter, systematically. So it's not only that as you get bigger, the life gets faster, but you have to innovate in an accelerated fashion. You are innovate, so you have to run faster and faster and faster, innovating. So this is really what it's like. It's much closer to that. And the question is, is that sustainable? And we have passed a point where the time between innovations, and you can actually put in the numbers. The, the theory is actually remarkably good, because if you put in the numbers for now, you get numbers that this time should be of the order of about somewhere between uh, 20 and 50 years, which is roughly what it is. Um, it's probably less than that. And the critical point is that it's less than, for the first time, roughly, in the last 50 years anyway, less than human lifespan. Productive lifespan. Now, when I was a boy, I assumed I, everything was going to be the same. You know, kind of the, now that's not the case. We've gone from computers to IT in twenty years. So uh, that's the problem. Here's the. Um, uh, I got some data. I'm not going to show you that. And this is pretty much the conclusion. I just want to show you one thing, which is not mine, and it's done by some something by someone you may have heard of called Ray Kurzweil. The word singularity um, in a completely different context, sadly. Um, And his singularity is the singularity in the other direction that we go to a singularity of innovation where we're all cyborgs, basically. Attach computers to your brain and so anyway, it's a whole new avatar kind of image. I don't know what it is, anyway. But he actually produced this nice graph, the first part of which I don't believe. But what is plotted here are the big paradigm shifts, which is what I'm talking about, in years versus how long ago they took place. And these are these are uh, biological. I'm not sure I'm relevant, but what is relevant is this, are these, and getting closer and closer. And, uh, and there's another one, another version you can make. It's everything piling up, and this is simply not sustainable. So um, I'm sorry, I went on too long. I will finish there. I will. To shut the show down. And I apologize for going on too long and virtual, uh, big boys and girls. would walk out, I hope. <laughs> so, uh, thank you. Thank you.